Well, welcome to Advent Week 2, which is our fancy Christian way of saying the arrival of Jesus to earth. Um, and, and this morning we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So first, a little recap of the, the history that Zach gave us last week. Isaiah is a man from Judah, probably of noble birth. He has little money. He has the ear of the king. And God has called him to be a prophet to the people of Judah, who, who are a people who have been essentially in a, in a time of incredibly great prosperity. So under King Uzziah, under the, for the last five decades, they've just enjoyed wealth and plenty in the kingdom of Judah. But at the same time, They've been in this gradual downward spiral of spiritual stagnance, resulting in both individual moral corruption, but also this widespread social injustice. Yes, they went to the temple. Yes, they paid lip service to the God whose blessings they were enjoying, but it was just an outward show of spirituality because the, the gap between rich and poor was ever widening. The poor were oppressed. Judges could be bought and sold, but despite these conditions, the people still believe that God is on their side. They think that their prosperity is actually evidence of this. They get overconfident. And this happens to all of us sometimes. My, my husband, Rob, is 6'5". Is He's this incredibly strong man. And I, I noticed this uh, very early in our dating relationship when he helped me move from one apartment to another. And he picked up my couch unassisted and just carried it into the living room where it was going to go. Uh, and it wasn't like an Ikea couch, right? It was like whatever I could afford at that time, which was probably from Craigslist and manufactured in the 50s. So just this really impressively strong man. Um, and I've seen various manifestations of this uh, in our time of marriage. One time I came out and found him hanging from a tree with a chainsaw. I won't go into the details of that, but he's an impressively strong guy. Um, and because of this, he may on occasion become a little overconfident in his physical abilities. He does have one Achilles heel, and it's that his uh, left kneecap sometimes pops out of joint. And when this happens, it causes immense pain. He can't walk on it. It's really bad. So, but usually he can just pop it right back in when it happens. But this one time, he was out working in the yard, and his knee popped out. He couldn't get it back in. And then some time went by, and it swelled up, and he definitely couldn't get, get it back in. So I had to take him to the emergency room. And um, he was just miserable. I don't know what he thinks happens at the doctor, like maybe he's going to fall asleep and wake up without a kidney, but he just seems to really hate going there. I think he thinks that for someone of his size, it's maybe a sign of weakness, um, but he won't say that to me because I go like all the time when people around me get sick. So, so we're at the doctor and he's feeling pretty humbled, no doubt, by this experience, and even more so because the doctor insists that I take him home, uh, that I take him back out to the car in a wheelchair. So, you know, I'm rolling him up to the, to the exit of the emergency room doors in the loading bay area, and I park him there, and I run across the parking lot to go get my car, and there's a car in front of us that seems to be unloading a man who's unconscious, and so I just pull up behind them and wait my turn, and there's like a slope that goes down from the door to the actual loading area itself, which I think is an enormous engineering oversight, by the way. Um, so Rob is sitting there, and at some point he just realizes, like, he can't. He, this is just too much for him. So to, to save his pride, he decides that he is going to power his way and roll his way over to the car, only he gets caught, you know, in the inertia of this slope into the loading bay, and, and he fought the good fight. He really did. He tried, um, but ultimately he lost control of the trolley and wrecked his wheelchair into the car of the people unloading the unconscious man. So... I am as constant as the northern star, says Caesar, on the day that he dies. Hubris is a most blinding affliction. 
And it certainly was for Judah. Despite their descent into moral apathy, into social injustice, they believe themselves to be somewhat invincible. And I'm going to back up a little bit and give you some context as to why they might believe that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I know that's further back than you were hoping, but I'm still going to get you out of here by 1215. So God creates man and woman and places them in paradise. And then the, the serpent, Satan, comes and he tempts them. He says that, that they could be more powerful and have more knowledge than God has entrusted to them. And the man and woman take the bait and through their disobedience, sin and death enter the world. And then the next several hundred years of history is just this sad catalog of human beings continually refusing to turn to God, but trying to take matters into their own hands to fix the various circumstances of their lives in these unsuccessful ways. So then God, in an attempt to win back the hearts of the people that he loves and misses, he chooses the nation of Israel, the sons of Abraham, to, to serve as a kind of ambassador to the rest of the world. He blesses them, not because they deserve it, but he blesses them because he wants them to be his display people. He wants the rest of the world to look at them and see that living in covenant community with God leads to blessedness. This is their mission, to live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that the rest of the world looks on them and wonders why. This is their mission. So fast forward a bit. This is what's happening in the time of Isaiah. We're going to put a map up on the screen uh, so this isn't so confusing and also because I always wanted to use a laser pointer. <laughs> so exciting. So um, Israel is not killing it in their mission to, to, to be God's display people. And in fact, after demanding that God give them a king like other nations, even though he warns them that that's a terrible idea, this arrangement lasts only three monarchs, Saul, David, Solomon, before the kingdom splits into two. So the northern half becomes Israel uh, with Samaria as its capital, and then the southern half becomes Judah. Up here we have Assyria, and Assyria is a rapidly growing superpower at the time of Isaiah. They've already made vassal states of many of the, the places between themselves and Judah. And so Israel makes a uh, military alliance with Syria, and I'm going to refer to them as Damascus, their capital, so it's not confusing. So, so Damascus and Israel make a military alliance, and they try to persuade King Ahaz of Judah to join them, but he won't. King Ahaz refuses. Last week, Zach mentioned how Ahaz is offered a sign from God. The Almighty offers him a sign to show him that, that if he holds his ground against these invading nations, that God will be with him, God will protect him. But Ahaz actually turns down the sign from God and instead goes and begs for assistance from Assyria. He asks Assyria for help, and, and Assyria helps. But because he turns down the help of God and goes and tries to take matters into his own hands, he effectively surrenders Judah to Assyria without even putting up a fight. And they struggle under the economic and the, and the religious pressures of this imperial power until the rebellion of King Hezekiah a couple decades later. So in the book of Isaiah, we see two parts. We see the first part, which is, uh, which is where Isaiah is called. He's commissioned to a ministry of judgment. God cannot allow his people to, to continue this descent into wickedness. Remember, they are his display people. They're his ambassadors, his front lines, his people in the trenches who are, who are assisting him in, in winning over the rest of the world. So he needs them to live lives that reflect the, his character to all nations. 
And so Assyria becomes his chastening rod, his tool that he uses to purify the people so they can once again be the city on the hill, the light to all nations that they were called to be. The first part of the book of Isaiah records all of the pain and the loss that God's people experience as a result of their rebellion. But God does not leave them there. In chapter 40, we see Isaiah commissioned again, but this time to a ministry of comfort. The book of Isaiah moves from a picture of fallen creation to new creation, from judgment to salvation. And we get a glimpse of that here in chapter 9, where Isaiah foreshadows the coming of Messiah, of Jesus, who will make a way not only for his display people, but for all people to be reunited with their creator God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we're using this series to look at how Jesus himself lives up to or into these names that were prophesied over him some 700 years earlier by Isaiah. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Mark chapter 4 beginning in verse 35 to see that story that we heard read this morning that begins with the disciples in a boat with a sleeping Jesus and, and, and this huge storm comes and they're kind of freaking out and so they wake him up and they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Here's what I find interesting about this passage. So at the end, they're terrified, and they say, Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? But let me point out that up to this point in the Gospel of Mark... Jesus has already healed physical deformities. He's already healed sickness. He's already healed leprosy. That was still a thing. He's healed paralysis, and he's cast out demons. So part of me's like, really, guys? Really, it's the wind and the waves bit that freaks you out, huh? So there's something different, something unique about this miracle that, that takes them from impressed to terrified. When my daughter was about 10 or 11 months old, we took her to the beach for the first time. And I wanted to give her like a bucket and a shovel because that's what you have at the beach. And, and we stopped at a family dollar on the way, but they didn't have any proper beach toys. So all we could find was, was like a, a Halloween candy pail um, and, and a, a poop scooper for a litter box. <laughs> so, you know, we got to the beach and she scoops the sand, but it just kind of trickles out there. She's really just straining for gold. So... We're there and there's this little family next to us with their little boy and he has a whole bunch of toys with him and so he comes over and shares some of his toys with her. And so we get a proper bucket and shovel and I fill it with kind of wedgish sand and I flip it over and I pat it and voila, out comes a sandcastle. And Ember was enthralled. So enthralled, in fact, that a moment later she smashed it with her fist. <laughs> and then she wanted me to make more sandcastles so she could smash those with her fists and then she started making her own sandcastles and smashing those ones with her fist. And you could see this kind of like menacing delight on her face when she realized that I can make sand do what I want. She was drunk with power. <laughs> the disciples, they'd seen healings before, right? Even before the birth of Jesus, Yahweh was still a God of miracles, but only on very special occasions do we see someone command the elements. In this story, the way Mark writes it, even the actual vocabulary he uses is reminiscent of the story of Jonah, when God himself, Yahweh himself, stills the storm in response to the obedience of the sailors. There's something about Jesus commanding the, the, the sea, 
which if you'll remember in the ancient Near East is the uncontrolled, unexplored wild. Something about Jesus commanding the wind, which is the same word they use for wind and evil spirit. There's something about Jesus commanding these elements that is reminiscent, that harkens back even further to the God of the universe, the creator God, Yahweh, calling order out of the watery chaos of creation. There's something about the, 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 the creation itself bending to the word and will of Jesus that puts him in an entirely different category than the great and holy men that they'd known. And I think there's at least some parallel to our modern attitude about miracles. I think if, if we see someone healed from a terminal illness, we praise God, absolutely, but we also think that maybe there was kind of like a glitch in the diagnosis. Or maybe that there was just a, a really good response to treatment, some scientific explanation. If someone claims to be healed of an evil spirit, we might be really happy for them and with them, but we kind of think that maybe they just got sober. But if we see someone manipulate earth or air or fire or water like the last airbender in his mystic kung fu, we have a word for that, right? Everything else we can call coincidence, but that, that we call magic. And we are completely obsessed with it. We long to harness the power of the Almighty. The allure of it at its most innocuous just results in little tiny Harry Potters trick-or-treating at your doorstep, which is adorable. But at its most pernicious can result in fascination with or even practice of the occult. We long to have power over our universe. The descendants of Noah trying to build a tower that goes all the way up to heaven. The prophets of Baal cutting themselves and trying to call down fire from the sky. Simon the sorcerer trying to buy the power to bestow the Holy Spirit on other people. We're completely obsessed with possessing the power of God. And of course we are. Of course we want to wield the power of the Almighty. We were made in his image. God called order out of chaos and we were made in his image. He covered the entire earth with the waters of the flood and we were made in his image. He caused food to collect like dew on the grass to provide for his people and we were made in his image. He rained down sulfur from heaven, turned the river to blood, made the sky and the sun go dark and we were made in his image. We were made in his image. Of course, we long to imitate the power of God. It was our very first sin when offered paradise, we instead choose to pursue power over our lives, our worlds, our fear of missing out on that ever evasive something better that led us down the, the road of disobedience and ultimately death. We've been attempting to harness the power of the Almighty from the very beginning. It was the sin of Ahaz. Shall I trust in God's promise or take matters into my own hands? We are a race of people who love to take matters into our own hands because we misunderstand. We misunderstand what it means to harness the power of the Almighty. In the Psalms, the troubles of God's people are represented by stormy waters. The disciples as the wind and the waves are closing in, the disciples want a show of power to save them. And of course they do. It looks like the boat is going down when, when the storm is on the horizon for us. We want a show of God's might. 
the spectacular miracle that we're longing for so she isn't sick anymore, so he comes home again. So that I don't have to wake up and feel like this every morning forever. We look to the, the Almighty and we believe, to some degree at least, that he's capable of coming through. The disciples believe he's capable of coming through for them. That's why they woke him up. Only they misunderstand what coming through actually means. We have a tragically short-sighted imagination for the miraculous. Yes, it would be a miracle if the boat stopped rocking, but even if it goes under, that does not mean that a miracle hasn't taken place. Death and decay are at work in all of us right now. So at best, what the disciples are asking for here is, is a delay, a stay of execution, because the sin and the death that entered the world at our invitation, birth, for the mere mortal, is simply the beginning of a very long process of dying. So to delay it isn't actually that spectacular a feat. A God who is indeed mighty would not use a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. He would heal it. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. Not to delay death, but to save us even in the midst of it, to save us even through it. When did resurrection, resurrection, reanimation, bringing the dead back to life, when did resurrection from the dead become less impressive than postponing a death that will come anyway. It is a superbly effective trick of the enemy to convince me that my suffering is evidence of God's apathy. Suffering is not the enemy, and when we make it the enemy, we decide that a God who does not change our circumstances is either powerless or heartless that he is either impotent or inhumane. If you don't provide this thing in this way, then I won't follow you, I won't worship you, as if, as if the loss of my allegiance in any way diminishes the might of God. It doesn't. If I never pray to him again, he still controls the breath that I no longer use to address him. It doesn't make God less in any sense. Not a single ounce of his power is lost. Not a ray of his glory is darkened if I fail to worship him. So why on earth do I behave as though my loyalty is leverage to get him to do what I want? It's just more of my power grabbing at a very intimate level. When God answers my prayers with a no or with silence, when he won't stop the storm from tossing us beyond our limits, it's not apathy. He's not left us alone. In fact, much to the contrary, as here with the disciples, he puts himself in the same boat. And he may let us ride out the storm or he may calm it. But regardless, he does so shoulder to shoulder beside us. If the boat goes down, it goes down with him in it. He's there with you, and nothing will move him to leave. The sleep of Jesus in this story is not a picture of apathy, but a picture of faith. Perfect faith in the mighty God who saves in every circumstance, not simply from every circumstance. The mighty God who saves beyond the grave. And listen, I'm not 
in any way trying to minimize your pain. If someone had said all of this to me last year when I lost my brother, I might have punched them in the face. If you're going through a time where the grief or the loss or the pain that you're experiencing is so far beyond your limits, listen, God's heart breaks for you. I'm not telling you that he's allowing you to suffer, to, to toughen you up or to make a point. I'm just saying that we are still living out the, the, the consequences of a fallen world. And God has begun to bring his kingdom to earth, but it has not yet arrived. But it is grace, not apathy, that compels him to give us a little more time to give us a little more time so that more of his beloved lost might have the chance to hear and to believe and to partake of the joy that is waiting all of his children in the end. I don't know why your particular suffering is happening right now, but I do know that what you do with it will determine whether you join or oppose God in his work of redeeming the entire world. We have a common enemy, and it's not our circumstances. It's, it's not our pain. It's the liar, the accuser, who tricked us into inviting pain and loss and death into the lives of God's beloved in the first place. Suffering is not the enemy. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Suffering, while it is not what God wants for us, it is what he can use in us to produce the, the hope and the character that will make us effective as his ambassadors to a lost and broken world to participate in the mission he gave to his people long ago. And that might sound grandiose to you, but listen, it is really practical to me because I have sinned so much in my life. And I have lost so much. And I could take my shame and my sorrow and I could make it a barricade so that no one gets in, including God. And, and even if I'm not a pawn of the enemy, I'm at least at that point no longer a threat. I could make it a barricade. Or I could take my shame and my sorrow and I could make it a bridge. And I can invite other people to walk across it so that they might glimpse the Savior, the God who makes me more than my last worst decision. Your sin is not a special and unique snowflake. If you do it, someone else invented it, and someone does it more than you. And we are not alone in our losses. If you grieve, there are other hearts, some nearer than you think, who are experiencing the same emptiness, let it out. Let it out. Confess your grief, confess your sins, confess your faith, so it can be a bridge for someone else to walk across and meet Jesus. The greatest and most satisfying revenge that we can take upon the enemy is to use the suffering he causes to lead other people to the ultimate joy that we find in Jesus. This is how we wield the power of the Almighty. God could have imposed his will onto us, right? We see him do it to creation in this passage. He could have done the same to us. He's God. But that's not how he wanted to display his might. 
much like the people in the prophecy of Isaiah, we're living in a moment of history where we're, we're beginning to feel a little out of control. And powerful forces, both foreign and domestic, make us want to grope about for what little control we think we can take into our own hands. And that looks different for all of us. For some of us, power looks like forcing other people to bend to our will or at least our opinions. For some of us, it looks like being so self-sufficient that we will never need help from anybody else. Small but not particularly new manifestations of, of a longing to imitate godlike power. But listen to me, we already have access to the power of the Almighty every single day of our lives, and it won't be at the expense of someone else. And it won't divide us, and it won't puff us up with vanity. It will, in fact, bring healing and hope and humility and joy and unity, and we could all use a little bit of that right now. Because arguably, the mightiest thing that the Almighty ever did was to grant us eternal pardon. The strongest thing he ever did was to die so that we could live. It is one of the mysteries of our faith that God became a child. When we really understand our predicament as sinners, we know that there is no Grand Canyon large enough to represent the gap between us and a perfectly holy God. We can't get there from here. We were dead without hope in our sins, bridging that gap was the most powerful miracle in all of created history. His mightiest act was to make himself weak enough to die to pay the penalty for our sins, and for this he did not exert the authority of his birthright. He didn't wield the power of his heavenly armies. It was by worldly standards an act of weakness. He allowed himself to be mocked, abused, and murdered, all the while having the power to wreak cosmic apocalypse upon his abusers. But he shows his might in the ultimate act of humility. By stilling the beating of his heart, by breathing his last so that you and I can be forgiven much, so much more than we could ever know. Who do you need to let off the hook? As I thought about this question this weekend, I realized that there are two people that I have not yet taken the step of forgiveness with, the, the two guys who were with my brother when he overdosed. And they waited longer than they should have to call the police because they didn't want to get busted. And, and it might not have mattered. It might not have mattered, but the possibility that it could have has kept me up at night and held me all bound up in my resentment for a really long time. And I doubt very much that they will ever hear this message, but if they do, this is what I would want to say to them today. I forgive you. I forgive you because when I collapsed on the doorstep of Regroup a decade ago, I had made such horrifically bad decisions, so selfish, so damaging, that I left a wake of wreckage behind me. I forgive you because I know the evil that I'm capable of. And how can I have hope that isn't a sham in a world that's torn apart by hate and by fear? How dare I have hope of reconciliation, hope for the forgiveness of the worst evils I've done if I cannot forgive the worst evils done to me? 
forgive you because I need so much more forgiveness than I can ever dole out. And this is one of the most tangible ways I can worship the God of mercy at the foot of the cross that he hung on for me. I don't feel like I want to forgive you. I may never feel like I want to forgive you, but that's just not a good enough reason. Feelings are real, but they are not truth, and they don't absolve me of doing what I have a responsibility to do. I doubt very much that the people I've wounded feel like forgiving me. C.S. Lewis writes, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I can be so generous with myself when I make a mistake and give you all of the reasons that I made it and even perhaps convince myself that my excuses should warrant your pardon. But then how can I be so miserly with the mistakes of others? In the years that I've worked with Regroup, I've learned that there's always a story behind every decision, and more often than not, it's not the story that I think. And it's easy for us, having only one side of the information, to fill in the blanks for somebody else, to decide for them why they behaved as they did. I do this with my poor husband, like, all the time. Uh, You know, he makes a statement to me, like, hey, is your family planning on coming down for Thanksgiving too? And I fill in all the blanks of why he's asked me that question with unconscionable speed. And I'm often so far off in my assumptions that by the time I repeat back to him what I heard, it reads like a page from Wacky Mad Libs, that game in high school where you like fill in an adjective and a noun and then you read it back to someone. And all he wanted to do was, you know, plan a dental cleaning for over the holiday weekend, but I only learned that after saying to him through choked back cheers, why do you hate my mother? (laughs) It does no one any good to fill in the blanks to stories we don't actually know and especially not to stories that we are unwilling to listen to. I know those guys have a story. I know it because something drove them to use on that day too. But even if they didn't, it's not like I'm really letting anybody off the hook. I mean, in a long enough timeline, all of us will have to stand before God to give an account of every careless word we have spoken. I don't have the power to let them off the hook or put them on it, but I can on this side of glory Release my right to retribution over to God. That's what forgiveness is for us. I can refuse to sit as judge and jury over your life in the hope and in gratitude that an incomprehensibly generous God sits as judge over mine. Forgiveness is allowing the only unsullied judge to sit on the bench, and that is certainly not me. We don't forgive as some kind of consolation prize because we lack the power to exact retribution. God lacked nothing. He lacked nothing. Forgiveness does not make us powerless. Forgiveness is the way that we can follow in the footsteps of our Savior in an act of such enormous power that it ended forever the possibility that evil could win in the end. Who do you need to let off the hook? doesn't make you powerful to keep them there. The only person it strengthens is the one who tricked us in the beginning and then reveled in the sounds of us blaming each other. Who do you need to let off the hook? It's not weakness. It's the power of God. He made himself weak to win over the one thing that he never, ever, ever forces to bend to his will the human heart. 
Are we willing to harness his power in this way? Are we willing to make ourselves weak to be a better reflection of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to see him? Our Savior came to earth as a child and he died a criminal's death in our stead, but it was no less mighty than calling the heavens and the earth into existence. Make no mistake, he again moved heaven and earth. Only not by force, but by love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for the opportunity to be here among my friends, to celebrate your arrival to earth, to praise you for who you are. Lord, we praise you for everything that you are and everything that you make us to be in your image. We praise you that you are a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and an everlasting father and a prince of peace. We praise you for the enormous grace that you've shown us by condescending to be among us at all and and to an even greater extent to die for us so that we can be with you forever. Lord, we confess that we have fallen so short of your glory, so short of what you've called us to. We confess that we are far too generous with our own sins and not nearly generous enough with others. Would you help us, God, to be a people of forgiveness? Would you help us to be marked by the grace that you have shown us in such a way that it cannot help but show through in the way that we interact with the human beings here that you've given us to love? Lord, would you rescue us from our pride and our need to control? Would you show us that the plan that you have for us is immeasurably greater and more comforting than the one that we can devise on our own? Would you help us to put down all of the matters that we're trying to take into our own hands? Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that you gave us in the form of your son. We thank you that you died for us, that even if only one of us existed on this earth, you would still want to die for us because you cannot live without us. Lord, thank you for being so crazy about us that you do crazy things. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our hearts and see where we might be a better reflection of you where we can let someone off the hook so that they might understand your grace as we've understood it for ourselves. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.